0: Hello, kaiju fans. This is Joe, your regular co-host. Tonight, I am joined with Dr. Steve Rawl, Associate Professor in Media Production at York St. John University. This is episode 106, and you are in for a treat. So, Dr. Rall, or can I call you Steve?
1: You absolutely can call me Steve, yes.
0: Awesome. So, we are here to talk about your book, which I have read. It is titled Transnational Kaiju, Exploitation, globalization, and cult monster movies—that is a mouthful, but it is a great book. I have read it, so um we're going to dive right into how it got started. One doesn't necessarily just start with kaiju, so how did you get on that page?
1: No, um, thank you for having me. Uh, it's wonderful oh, yeah. to be on, um, and great out talking about this book and talking about kaiju. It's fantastic. Um, how did I get started with kaiju? Um. Slowly, I think, like, probably a lot of British fans. Um, I don't think we were quite as exposed to kaiju movies Um, when I was younger. I'm uh, in my mid-40s. I'll give that away early on. Um, So I don't think we were quite exposed to things um, quite as much as, the American audiences were. So it was a little bit slow for me. I remember watching them on on Channel 4 in the mid-90s and then probably getting into it in the 2000s. As, as better DVD releases came along. Um, and I just kind of got obsessed with it um, through kind of the last 10 years as I started um, looking particularly at kind of global trends in um, particularly kind of exploitation cinema. I, um, around the early 2010s, I read a lot about Takashi Miike's movies. And I got really fascinated by Japanese movies after they left Japan. Um, And kaiju just seemed the perfect thing to kind of marry this interest with um, a really fascinating genre that has a life beyond the borders of Japan. um, But is so thoroughly Japanese and so I I guess it's a paradox in that case, isn't it? You know, it's it's kind of these movies circulated so well um, and were adopted in so many different cinemas, but they still remain so Japanese at their core
0: there we go so if we can if we can ask a cheeky question what's your favorite kaiju
1: ah that is so hard that's so unfair
0: it's like asking Um, your favorite pokemon at this point isn't it it
1: is it yeah um
0: megalon megalon good choice 50th anniversary coming up next year yeah
1: i know i just have a, a i have such a soft spot for that film um it's kind of i mean it says it in the um uh the beginning of the book that i've i've not quite been able to convert my wife into a fan of godzilla versus megalon um
0: strangely enough that was the first film that i subjected my partner Dawn to she is soon to be my wife uh, and uh, she holds an equally dubious opinion of that film but uh to be fair we threw him in in the deep end of the pool there didn't we
1: that is true that is true and um, didn't kind of ease in through you know 1954 and uh, um and even although she did love my wife did love um Shingu um, to uh, to her credit but the charms of um Godzilla versus Megalon have never quite broken through that barrier
0: but it has a lot of something that's for sure
1: yeah but I so... kind I kind of feel sorry for Megalon as well you know, it's kind of, it's, it's looked upon as kind of the the worst of the series. And so I, I kind of just feel sorry for them.
0: It's the worst, huh? Oh, I thought that was reserved for Terror of Mechagodzilla, but, you know, I'll take it. So is that your favorite kaiju film, in addition to having your favorite kaiju in it?
1: Um, no, I think I'm, I think I'm old school. And, and the best one is the first one. The first Godzilla film, I think is, is, is the best of all kaiju films. Just the, it's the one, certainly, you know, writing about these films globally, it's just the one you keep coming back to. It's the one that sets it up, sets up the template, sets up the way these these films are made, and the, the, the core themes of them, you just come back to it, you can't, you can't get over it, I think.
0: There you go. I was going to say, recently, I will agree that Shin Godzilla is my favourite, but working in corporate bureaucracy, that is that that hit close to home is it too true to you yeah it it was kind of like laughing whilst crying at the similarities it's like you could really see how it is a satire you know you know disguised as a kaiju film yeah so uh one of the great things we'll kind of dive into the book here um transnational kaiju exploitation globalism and cult monster movies again that is the title it is on amazon this Is very refreshing. This is a fantastic book from the standpoint that it isn't regurgitating the same information. There have been so many kaiju books that just talk about a director's stance, how the film was made, and what the film went on to do. So that's been done before. It keeps getting done. And many magazines, and blogs and podcasts we're no exception we've done it too everybody (laughs) likes to hear the sound of their own voice but uh a lot of it's just the same but this is a different concept and a different way of approaching the material so what is transnationalism as an expert and why is it an interesting topic okay um to kind of start
1: with some of the things you're saying um I didn't think I had anything else to add there. You know, I've I've read so much great stuff by fan scholars. You know, I, I couldn't have done this without, you know, the work by people like Steve Reifel and, and Ed Godzicsky. You know, it's impossible to to add anything more. So I, I kind of thought it was pointless um to add that when that great work was that? Those books need to come back into print, I think is the is is kind of the thing. Um but transnationalism was was my take on it because I I fixated, and I spoke just a little bit to J.D. Lees about this as well, about this word Kaiju, um, that most of the genres we have have English names, although translated from English, but they're essentially the same name. you know, they're, they're the musical, they're, uh, the Western, um, and they flow around the world globally. But Kaiju's gone the other way, and it's come to name a, a genre globally through its Japanese name. And I think that's really interesting. So transnationalism speaks to the ways in which things move across borders. Essentially, it's kind of a way of thinking about uh, globalization and how globalization has impacted us. In cinema, it's right from its inception. You know, We all start watching movies from around the world. All kinds of countries start producing stuff and they get into export markets. And so in, in one sense, it's about how connected we are. How so many people cross borders um, from tourists to migrants, and we tell stories about them. So in a in a certain kind of way, it's about thinking about flows of culture, flows of money, flows of people, um, and how we're all, we're all interconnected. Um, and it's a it's a better word than global. Um, because it, it, it means that the, the meanings and the things that are important about nations still remain, doesn't get rid of you know, being Japanese or being British or being American. But there are much more interconnections between those. And they're not neutral. They are politically charged sometimes. Japan's kind of relationship with with the rest of East Asia is um, tense. I think is a simple way of putting that. Um, but those lines of culture end up in uh, in different ways, um, in different movies. Um, so I was down at a conference earlier this week and uh, having listened to lots of presentations about really interesting and really gory uh, horror films um, as ways of kind of de-westernizing a genre um, to make it more global, to make it uh, less Americanized. Um, I then spoke about War God um, and how War God is the sort of adoption of Japanese tropes, but in a very Chinese story, um, but with special effects by uh, Koichi Takano. Um, so that kind of flow of individuals and this kind of mashing up of, of two nations cultures is is kind of that's at the core of transnationalism for me. Um, I don't know, that's kind of rambly way of putting it, I think.
0: So to ask, couple obvious questions here so folks that are listening to this podcast or think about picking up this book you're saying that kaiju is a term that these films forced into the global market that never really left them it was iconic in its own right that that is the way that they were labeled to those that would say well it's a monster movie for those of us that call them monster movies does that mean how how would you address that question in that well we call it a monster movie or like in the states yeah my parents certainly called them monster movies for better or for worse i found the term kaiju in the 2000s and i think that it really took off with pacific rim i think pacific rim had a big handle in pushing that word so how would you respond to that line of thought
1: i think it's i think it's fair I think it's a way of talking about a particular set of monster movies um that have a particular figure which generally is is kaiju, is is those giant big beasts. Um I think in the Japanese term I I kind of I kind of trick it a bit in the book, maybe where I talk about half human. Um that's definitely a strange beast, but it's not Daikaiju. Mm-hmm. Um but is strange enough to be encompassed there. But I think for me it's it's so much playing around with the King Kong motif and King Kong is so fundamental to what becomes the kaiju movie that there are connections there, but certainly um, say the blob, which I know you've been talking about recently, um, we wouldn't necessarily see as as a kaiju movie, but we would see it as a monster movie.
0: Yeah. I asked that question partially because we take a very broad scope in this podcast because it's such a niche fandom. Yeah. We don't wanna we don't want to kick anybody out for just not believing just so. So just getting you know it clear, I mean, whilst monster movies and kaiju movies are very closely related, it's the large giant monsters, in particular, I guess you could say, structuring of a film that yeah. leads it to be a kaiju film. Yeah. And that's there's a lot
1: of there's a lot of rampaging.
0: <laughs> I think yes. is the thing. A lot of running of the masses, as it were. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. and and something I guess something like uh them say you know with its giant ants they're they're not anthropomorphized in the way that kaiju are you know the distinctive personalities of Kaiju I think are really important so once they're either um many in number 1998 Godzilla you know those little uh Godzilla's you know you've kind of lost the connection to Kaiju there. Um these are just little monsters running around. They're not really Kaiju. Um, I remember
0: it, that part in your book. yeah, you yeah you did mention the good old Gino. so yep, that was, something
1: something's gone wrong there
0: so picking up on Gino and uh, how it is kind of in essence a takeoff of the of from the beast of twenty thousand fathoms, yeah, which is a giant monster, which has running of the masses, which. I would argue that it has quite a bit of personality. It's great, Ray Harryhausen monster, and it did yep. have an impact on the original Godzilla uh, being put out. Where does that rank in terms of being a kaiju versus just a monster movie or a large monster movie?
1: Uh, uh, there's probably two things there. One is the, the monster, like you say, has it has a lot of charm to it, um, and and secondly, it's it's the first movie to have. Certainly, the first movie I can find that that has the word kaiju in the title once it's translated into Japanese, um, so that that word starts to take hold, um, and and it has those modern themes, those modern themes of nature versus science, and kind of it's about crazy mad science, um, and 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 what that does to us, you know, which is generally to cause our doom, um, unless we can find better
0: science to kill it, of course. Which usually ends up being a detriment as well yeah. so yeah i just i was just curious about those things they are explained in your book you do go over that for anybody who you know immediately is just like well, wait a second i can think of like a dozen different examples you know that like flow against that logic it is addressed in the book which is great so one of the things that you speak at at length in the book and i think you've already touched on it here is the original gojira film yeah so when you were writing this book how did you keep it from just becoming a godzilla book because i think that that would have been a very easy trap to fall into
1: yeah and when i was originally pitching it to the publisher the the reviews did say how does this not become a godzilla book um and it it is important it is foundation i think almost every um Godzilla movie is mentioned or referenced at some point in the book. They just come up, they, they're they so fused. They are, um, we use the term, ur-texts, uh, you know, they're foundational. Yeah. They're, you know, they're the myth that we keep going back to. Um, so. It had to get beyond that. And there's great, great scholarship about the Godzilla films already. And again, like some of, say, some of the production histories, I didn't think I could add anything so don't bother
0: yeah um, that's, that ground's been re- tread over reference
1: reference it and then kind of get beyond it um but it's so important we just got to keep coming back to it um and I think one of the things I also wanted to do was was to kind of get outside we we like to think about the cinemas particularly in the west we like to think about national cinemas um, in the same way we think about French cinema, say, you know, it's all about classic auteurs and um and I, I wanted to, you know, you know, big up Ishiro Honda as well, um, as the kind of originating auteur of these movies. I know there's you know, Tsuburaya and and um uh, Tanaka as well, but Honda is the kind of classic auteur of these movies, and and after Rifle and Gotsuzuki's uh you know brilliant biography the ways in which honda's humanism is is writ through these films is is important so i wanted to give him kudos as being kind of father of this genre as much as he was a reluctant father
0: yeah i was gonna say he i think it i think that he imagined his career going in a different direction yeah prior to godzilla and very much so yeah there was there was there were painful attempts to get back on track however the public wants what the public wants so when when you mentioned things like humanism in his productions for those of us who aren't necessarily as familiar with filmmaking terms or you know plot devices what are you referencing what are you meaning
1: his deep passion for humanity you know this was this was a man deeply committed to peace know, and somebody who'd seen the worst of the world as well. Yeah. Um, and so committed to, to, to peaceful coexistence, you know, which runs through, although as violent as these films are, they come back to Honda's vision of peace. and I think that's really important um, to acknowledge in, in how we think about that. And then once we've got that origin, for me, it's about how we go out and how we see that in different ways, in different cinemas, in different nations.
0: Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, because it's been quite an early morning for Joe. But uh, my favorite film, Terror of Mechagodzilla, that was a Honda movie, mm. and I always uh, really enjoyed Titanosaurus in that film because you know it's a peaceful dinosaur. Yeah, but oh, he'll whoop you. You know, it's just one of those things. But um, I always, always liked you know like the uh, the reluctant antagonist or the uh, tragic antagonist and i think honda brought a lot to that it was never necessarily that something wanted to something was evil by nature it was something that just was yeah and was trying to get everything back on track so we've we talked about how we how it didn't just devolve into a godzilla book um you do put in a lot of great anecdotes and you do throw in some of the plots so while someone is reading this book it isn't like you'll reference a film and not explain what the plot was or explain yeah. what was necessarily going on you know with the directors and everything at times so it's great to have that bit of just knowledge in it so like entry-level fan it, it it's an advanced topic but an entry-level fan into the kaiju genre can read the book and go ah okay never heard of that particular film but you know i'm with you so i appreciate that you know like you threw those in there but again for myself if i was writing a book on this topic i would quickly fall into the pit trap of talking about my favorite films or getting off topic on for me at least it would have been a particular design aspect or a practical effect that was really fabulous in said film So with regards to transnationalism and keeping that topic at the forefront, how did you prioritize that over writing what I would call as a fan the fun stuff. So how did how did you manage to like meld those two? Transnationalism may be your fun stuff, but um as a fan of the films, I would have gotten completely stuck in and yeah. done like a chapter. It's like, did you see Godzilla's dorsal plates in this film? Man, they were wicked. <laughs> so how do you how do you keep on track and keep the the fandom aspect of your relationship with this genre, separate from creating a really nice. how should we say this, a really informative book on a different, well, not necessarily a different topic, but exploring that topic through kaiju.
1: Um, it's it's my academic training, you know, stay on topic, but try to hope it's not too boring. Um try to make sure it's not full of jargon. Um, and try to keep that there, were there was
0: something i noticed actually i am very against jargon i feel like jargon was invented to keep regular people from becoming academics
1: yeah um yeah yeah um yeah i i, I call it you know dead funky theory that kind of stuff as, as little of that as possible um there are lots of academics that hate that as well um i won't say who you know because we're recording but you know um uh, yeah, there's a little kickback in that to actually write and we kind of we want to be public academics. We want to be public scholars and be able to engage with the broader world rather than sit in ivory towers and um, write obscure, dense, unreadable text. Um, so, you know, it's great to know it's it's readable beyond a really small audience. Um my first my first book didn't even sell a hundred copies. You know, it's quite it was so niche.
0: <laughs> but you wrote a book, which is farther than most people get. So That's don't doubt it.
1: That is true. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that as well. Um I had to make tough choices in in what to leave out and what to to focus on. Oh, you just um, got
0: me in with another question in the back of my head now.
1: <laughs> um, you know, like I say, I was I was I was talking about war god at a conference earlier in the week. And it it doesn't even get a sentence in the book. It's just mentioned and moved on. Um, I think in all the kind of recycling of footage and things like um, the founding of Ming Dynasty. And these are now all the threads that I'm starting to work on. Like, I could have talked about Latitude Zero more in the book. And now I kind of want to go and write something about Latitude Zero as a kind of wild transnational movie from the end of the 60s, you know, with all its kind of crazy uh colorful design um bizarre performances of Cesar Romero and uh um and Joseph Cotton you know it's you know it's lovely for me there's a direct link between kaiju movies and Citizen Kane um that's probably my kind of slightly rebellious academic thing that you know i want to 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 match the really highbrow seeming stuff with the really kind of lowbrow seeming stuff because there's value in all of it
0: okay so now i have i have two questions here so first of all what is the thing that tugs at your heartstrings that got put on the chopping block for the book
1: um the high same maybe movies maybe i i don't think i i really spoke about them
0: you know, the, there wasn't uh, much about them to be fair, yeah. Um, compared to like shower stuff, I think that you yeah. went into shower quite heavily. Yeah. But the and how did you pronounce that as an academic? Showa, sure. no, not shower, show up, shower, shower, yeah. but the other one, I say, I say, okay. I say. So there we go. You, you are an academic, I say, we're going to use that as the as. The, the baseboard now i'm probably wrong i guess
1: is terrible so i'm probably wrong uh
0: yeah, well you're talking to an american um <laughs> but uh, a midwestern american at that <laughs> so um all right so yeah the haisei movies you know that that is a bit of a blow the, i think all of the kaiju films that came out of that era i can't think of really a bad one i think godzilla versus space godzilla is much maligned yeah but uh even then I love that cute little gibbering baby Godzilla or little Godzilla. I think that's awesome. I mean, it has its moments, but I think that was great. The Gamera films, those are fantastic. So uh, the Mothra '90s films as well. That you know, so many Mothra '90s. So some kind of them.
1: I think, I think <laughs> it's the kind of environmental angle. But I think those movies are really uh, dealt with well in um, Sean Rhodes and Brett McCorkle's book, uh, yeah. "Japan's Green Monsters," isn't it? Um, I think that's a really good book. Um, so, again, there are things I don't necessarily need to get into because I, I think they're covered really well elsewhere. Um, and um, maybe um, Minoru Kawasaki's movies, um, uh, which are kind of uh, deal with them in the conclusion, is kind of, you know, maybe they're more Japanese and less transnational um
0: so for those of us who aren't as familiar with that director you ramble off a few titles
1: uh calamari wrestler not a kaiju movie but a movie i love <laughs> uh and uh and executive koala
0: i'm looking that movie up the second uh, we're done with this interview
1: <laughs> executive Koala is uh just a great film um about
0: that sounds like it could be like a series and be amazing
1: yeah um fantastic and uh it's kaiju mono isn't it his his kind of kaiju wrestling film mm-hmm. um and he uh did he do uh the Girara sequel monster x at the g7 if i'm
0: remembering that right i haven't personally seen that film so i will pass rather than misinform but uh yeah so in other words we didn't retread ground so if something feels like it's lacking it's because it's been so covered in other text
1: yeah well covered so well i don't think i need to create the academics are always arguing with each other um but i i don't think i need to argue with sean and brooke
0: yeah you can uh you can write something different and there'll be no one in the room to argue with you yeah there we are totally. so you mentioned earlier highbrow cinema you mentioned cinema uh, citizen Kane*, which all the rose budding aside I found a little bit dull I, I am going to admit so when you w- when we talk about highbrow cinema just to give our listeners and potential readers of this book an idea what do you consider like cinema that is like true art form what is what, is, what are like two films you would go to
1: uh Andrei Tarkovsky's uh Andre Rublev, which is just a wonderful, wonderful film. Um and it's really tough. It? Another part of me wants to say um uh um Flash Gordon, um, mostly because I love that film from when I was a kid. Um I've always done this thing where I'm like, I'll talk about one really highbrow art movie and then I'll talk about something which is no that's really good illegitimate it's it's an unfair thing to talk about kind of highbrow lowbrow distinctions but
0: films so wonderful
1: to me because it's got all these things
0: films exist to invoke emotion and entertain yeah and you can do that very subtly and get a great response which I feel is what a lot of art house cinema is considered highbrow if you want to call it that and then there's, there are filmmakers that want to have fun and want to bring the audience on them. And there's no obscurity with what is trying to be accomplished. And I feel like those are the films that don't get as much respect, to use a word. So what you've done there is you've described, I think, two movies that fit into those slots, in my opinion. So for myself, when I think of... Um, like. I'll, I'll choose two black and white films that are not Kaiju films here. So Ikiru yeah that film will kick you in the gut. Huh. oh, that's a bad that's a bad analogy for that film, isn't it? Um that film that film will make you feel so bad., yeah. but at the end, you'll be like happy, ugly crying. And I think that that's a truly wonderful film it's a kurosawa film yeah. um look it up folks it, it's one of those films i feel like it could almost be like a christmas film in a way because I know. I know. It, it, it makes you feel like thankful for what you have and like that you can push things i think mm-hmm. that that's similarly to shin godzilla although not a satire that is about bureaucracy and getting things done Um, so that would be like, I guess you call it a slow burn, and then another film which I positively love, and it will make me cry every time I watch it, ugly cry, is It's a Wonderful Life. If you haven't seen that film, you're really missing something. So, yeah, I feel like when you're talking about art house cinema, or, you know, like when you're talking about really high-brow cinema, there's films like *Icarus*, which will absolutely astound you with the portrayal of the characters, how it's written, the pacing, and just the overall plot. Yeah. I mean, it's a very simple concept. And then you have, similarly, a movie that is well-written. It has iconic portrayals of characters, I would even say. It has um it has a plot, which again, I feel I feel is pretty simple. I mean, there's otherworldly beings in it, but you know, like considering the time of year that the film revolves around and what we're discussing, I mean, like, it's not necessarily overly you know dramatic with those roles, but I feel like while *It's a Wonderful Life* gets that iconic status, it wouldn't be considered highbrow cinema like *Icarus* would.
1: No, no, and I don't think Capra was was given his due as an artist. The the Potter'sville sequence in *It's a Wonderful Life*, you know, where the movie flirts with such darkness, is is an amazing sequence. Um, and I I don't think I think. So much of its a wonderful life is kind of oh you know yeah it's the Schmaltzy Christmas movie, but um, that kind of it's a film wise sequence in the middle is the best way to describe it, I think.
0: Yeah, it is, and it's it's just the end. Like you go from hope and feeling good to feeling. Like abysmal, like in the pit of your gut, and like I feel like I don't, I, I don't want to spoil elements of It's Wonderful Life, but I, feel I know and like people I, can
1: watch it soon. I mean, we're in November, yeah, I right feel Like, I, I feel watch like it if now. I give away
0: anything of It's a Wonderful Life in this <laughs> fandom. Like, I, I would legitimately be spoiling it for some people, but uh there's a part in the middle where something is forgotten and or misplaced. I guess you could say and you're just I remember sitting there watching it going no (laughs) and then someone finds it and you're like not them (laughs) and you know like it, it really takes you down only to bring you back up at the end too but there's like a legitimately horrible like guilty even though there's not necessarily guilt to feel with it because it's not necessarily like one person's loss it's an entire community's loss in that film and so, like again there's a lot of parallels between the two films icaru you have a person whose triumph occurs at the end of their life but if that person hadn't been there it would have been in the community's loss hmm. even though it wasn't overtly stated that that person had such a huge impact in the community but in a lot of ways it serves almost as a precursor to it's a wonderful life in that a lot of like if you take one person out of the equation what would all these other people's lives be like without that person and i think yeah there's there's a definite argument for what constitutes highbrow cinema and what constitutes enjoyable so i mean not that they can't both be enjoyable but one certainly strives more for the overt enjoyment yeah, and
1: it's, it's such a kind of false distinction yeah uh, and a really i feel like distinction. i
0: feel so. like there are a lot of what do you want to call it, institutions that promote that separation between them and they're as famous as the oscars in the united states and i think that it's just prevalent across whatever film rating bodies that you you see because everybody wants to appear the intelligent and i think that it's like oh have you seen this subtle film that me and only two other people know about it's really good you'll like it but it didn't it didn't you know like have millions of people saying it was awesome all over the place yeah but yeah it it is important to get those things you know like understood and again this comes through in your book i feel in in, at several points that these films were not made necessarily to be those kind of art films but they do have an art unto themselves which lots of people appreciate and then that's what's caused them to become transnational that's why that's why they themselves are so iconic that they've, they've gone across those because however many times another you know like production company outside of japan has tried to replicate the formula it's not quite the same so dino de la or not dino de la rentis uh, eugene laurie he is, I, I've talked about him multiple times in the podcast, but I think it is absolutely hilarious that we have beast from 20,000 fathoms, then we have Godzilla and he's like, oh, that's a great concept. And then he makes Gorgo. but Gorgo's nowhere near as iconic as God as so many Godzilla films. And whilst Gorgo is a fun movie, it doesn't have the X factor, whatever that is, the charm, the schlock, the overly anthropomorphized giant lizard, whatever it was, it seemed too respectful, and yet not respectful enough to the source material. And I feel like he's such a, like a, a great example because, again, Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, in so many ways, inspired so many different pictures, but. Even though he was potentially one of the great inspirations for what would become the genre, he couldn't nail it when he tried it. No, would I agree.
1: Yeah, I Gogo is a kind of movie with lots of charm again. I mean there's lots of movies with lots of charm,
0: but does the monster really nail it? Well, no, I don't think the monster really nails it. But when I i had a vhs of gorgo that i wore out i mean like it's one of the few you know films that made it into midwestern usa that joe could get his grimy mitts on but um i don't think i necessarily watched that film because i was drawn to it i watched it because it was there and as a person living in the united kingdom now gorgo makes a lot more sense culturally for me i can see why a lot of different things were done like people going underground in london to the well underground you know and, and hiding out there the um way that the military military is portrayed the idea of having the offspring of this giant amphibious death lizard Just carted around piccadilly circus like nothing could wrong could happen here you know come on i feel like there are a lot of what should we call it um there are a few inside jokes there but it's not going to have certainly a godzilla versus megalon status but even if you look at it from a more serious note from films of a similar time it's not going to have a Monster Zero vibe, because it's it's just it doesn't have that global approach. Um, it doesn't have like Terror of Mechagodzilla was one of the darker Shawa films. In even though it was dark tonally, you know, Gorgo has dark moments and it is actually a darkly lit picture. I think that you know the latter half of the film is just Scarlet's and uh dark tones but it doesn't reach that point and i don't think that there's been a movie that's really come close i mean pacific rim we were calling it kaiju i mean like this is your transnational concept to the core really what the yeah, yeah. guillermo delto did with well, yeah. pacific rim
1: appropriation mashup you know yeah and then like remakes, we're, just,
0: we're gonna throw a bunch of different things into it but the kaiju don't feel goofy they don't they don't have that rockam sockam robot feel that's certainly what they do and lots of kaiju folks and fans love that film but for myself it still felt like it was missing an element like the third act of that film felt like it was missing something and i feel like a lot of the kaiju films that i watched growing up they were more subtle with their third act like yeah we all knew it was going to end up with a giant rubber-suited slugfest like that's why we fast forwarded it to the like end of all of those vhs tapes but with pacific rim this it was this grand climactic finale you know with like multiple monsters fighting we had a like um destroy all monsters type you know like giant robots versus multiple giant monsters epic boss fight all of this we went into the other dimension we blew stuff up i'm apologizing to all the people who haven't seen pacific rim yet because i'm totally spoiling the climax of the film for you i'm sorry it's been a decade um but
1: we won't spoil the sequel then we'll just kind of
0: the sequel was spoiled because it was, watch it, anyway. the was spoiled it was made sequel was spoiled because it was made but um i'm sorry john bordega but um it just didn't reach that and what you go over in the book and it is a uniquely japanese concept really it may not have necessarily been a japanese concept inspired wholly by japanese art but when they took it and ran with it everyone afterwards couldn't really necessarily replicate the formula and i think that's one of the great things that i took from your book
1: yeah. Of course, net? there are all those articles about how Pacific Rim gets kaiju wrong and kind of empties out its metaphors and um, and doesn't kind of, you know, like, what do the monsters mean in Pacific Rim?
0: They're just a means to an end. That's that, what they
1: are. Um, that couldn't be more a transnational movie, you know, uh, Mexican director, you know, multinational cast. Shot all over the world, money with money from here, there, and everywhere, you know, and then
0: mostly kind of, Chinese production studios, but yeah,
1: <laughs> pretty much. Um, more so the sequel. Um, again, we were not won't spoil it, I won't talk about it. Um, uh, we won't spoil this podcast by talking about it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the kind of you know, in the utopian idea that we all work together to overcome these monsters, but the monsters are kind of just. They're kind of just the, the, and, our, the yeah. vehicle to tell that other story
0: and one of the things that i i really enjoy about the original gojira is that we didn't really win i mean the end of that film you feel like everybody lost yeah and in subsequent godzilla films you don't beat godzilla or you don't like defeat the kaiju because in concept that is nature you are going against and th- there's no winning against that beast i think roland so, emmerich
1: will argue with you there it's pretty easy to kill
0: <laughs> but did he make a kaiju film
1: uh, no he didn't um, there we go. He made a soggy mess
0: i wouldn't necessarily call it a soggy mess i do I, I i actually remember that film because i i went and saw it with my friends for like my birthday so i had like godzilla themed birthday and as a kid that grew up in like the 90s you know like we're getting the cgi godzilla independence day guys made it you know like very american portrayal there of young joe but I remember going and seeing it with them and they all came out of the film razzed. Like they were just so like, oh, that was awesome. And I remember my father who begrudgingly um, would probably admit that it was he who was responsible for my kaiju fandom. I think it was always probably one of the great mistakes in his fathering career. It's just like, I totally derailed Joe's whole plot of life by showing him these films. But I remember my father because we, because Mighty Joe Young, which was by Disney, came out at roughly the same time. We watched Mighty Joe Young, and then we watched the Godzilla film. And my father, I think it was always just a way of getting my back up or, you know, like poking fun at me because I would always react and I'd always bite on this, that King Kong beat Godzilla. So when um, the uh, Kong movie came out, Mighty Joe Young, and then we saw Godzilla. He said, "You know, I really enjoyed that movie. I think I like that movie more." It felt like a hollow because I'm like, "That wasn't Godzilla <laughs> because he died. You can't." I mean, my 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 favorite. Um, I, I guess I have two favorites, but they're ironically back to back. There's Terror of Mechagodzilla, and then there's Godzilla 1985 or Return of Godzilla. And in Return of Godzilla, I love. The tone of that film because it is made quite clear there is no stopping godzilla and that is one of the best concepts i'm really glad that toho took that forward that there is no stopping him you can get in the way but he is the irresistible force in the immobile object you're not stopping him so to have godzilla 1998 have him killed by an F18 you know granted i think it took like two or three you know direct Yeah couple of
1: color guys doesn't it but uh, it's it's
0: braid, yeah. and and a sub you know i mean like yeah. let's face it the iguana held its own against the united states military there are nations that can say that didn't do that but um i i feel like yeah it was that lack of an, an unstoppable force that really gave it so to use another kaiju you know along the similar vein so we'll talk about the Heisei Gamera films for a second which again hardcore fans of just about any kaiju uh filmography will will always revert back to those Gamera films as being golden examples of where to set the bar so Gamera in those films he is not invincible despite the original film's name I mean, you you can hit Gamera, he does bleed, but what makes the film have that sense of danger is the Gauss. And the Gauss, they start out small and they start out manageable, but there is kind of like a J-curve to how dangerous they become, and that's just how long you leave them alone. So in the very human element of faffing around and deciding what to do you give the gauss their opening to reproduce asexually which now that i think about it i think asexual reproduction became a thing in the late 90s for monsters but um the gauss are what drives that home and over the course of the gamra trilogy the first you have gauss the second you have legion and then the third you have iris now I would argue that Iris had the potential to become the most dangerous creature in that universe because it was devastatingly intelligent, manipulative, had a slew of great abilities. But it's the end of that film where the original antagonist is given its due credit. You see Gamera, you know, wading off into the destruction because he can't fly away from the city he has to wade through the center of town to pick a choice phrase from a song but um you see the hundreds of gauss converging on gamma and you realize that it's the like again like nature you're not necessarily going to beat it but it's just when you leave your problems alone they reach to it they reach a state to which you're not going to be able to cope with them and even if you're a gamma so i feel like again being able to defeat a kaiju i think part of that or unless you're another unless you're a kaiju yourself you're not beating a kaiju i feel like that is a hallmark of the japanese films but argue with me if i'm wrong i just monologue there i could practically no no I, i
1: i completely agree with you um because of the forces that are behind these things you know they The nuclear bombs, though, now, I guess, in a contemporary sense, the climate change, Um, you can't beat those forces. You can only figure out how to live with them and hope they don't step on you. You And that kind of that theme just recurs and recurs and recurs. And that's whether it's in uh, Japanese movies or whether it's in British movies or uh, Korean movies, you somehow figure out how to live with it you don't defeat it. Um, so, which is where the ones that get it wrong get they it get wrong.
0: it really wrong, yeah.
1: Um, which I, I think is kind of, it does take you back to Beast from 20,000 Fathoms where you've got that ambivalence about science where, yeah, bad science has made a monster and unleashed a monster on on the world, but there's good science to fix it. And there's this sort of, there's faith in science, but from Gajuda 54 you know, um, which I suppose it's worth remembering that that end monologue is delivered by Takashi Shimura from Ikiru. Um, the kind of wonderful crossover of studio filmmaking. Um, you can't beat this thing. You've either got to live, live with it. It's just going to come back again and again and again. Um, so the the sort of there's something fantastical a real kind of um wish fulfillment that you can actually beat these giant creatures
0: so i'm going i'm going to take take a film from the filmography and this is a film that i feel lots of kaiju fans really enjoy if you're a godzilla fan You've definitely seen it and you definitely at least loved it when it came out and it is very japanese in tone and it goes out of its way to demonstrate that other films with characters were not the legitimate article so godzilla mothra and king Ghidorah monsters all out attack or gmk yeah. as it is often you know shortened to that film has so many japanese cultural concepts in it and even in its main plot plot devices godzilla is a creature possessed empowered a vessel for all of the people who died on the pacific front during World War II, who were, I guess it depends on which translation you know you get, but they're either not remembered or they're not feeling the respect to spirits. So Godzilla is almost like a borderline yokai monster, and you have guardian beings, which I still feel robbed that we didn't get Veran in that film. But Ghidorah does look awesome, um, but that film for me as it has gone around the globe i remember seeing that film and for at least a decade i was like you want to watch godzilla film for the first time you want a unique concept watch gmk because that's one of the best ones that's come out so how would that how would that rank and tie in with transnationalist um viewpoints like how did that one work because it's one of the better reviewed ones, I feel.
1: Yeah. Um I don't think it does. I think this is why I don't talk about those movies a lot. <laughs> like you say, that's a very specific national historical origin. But it's kind of the movie, other it, equivalents for for the, you know, we can all relate to the bomb. We can't necessarily relate um to those kind of those left behind in the same way.
0: Yeah. So my my thought processes though like as a midwestern american i loved it and like i, I remember buying like copies for my friends and they were like this is amazing are all gods movies like this so like there was something in that that again it was it was the japanese kaiju concept in whatever mutated form it took in that film pardon the pun it definitely like came forward and at least it reached my midwestern town and i know that it reached others like there are lots of fans of gmk yeah and i feel like even though it is so japanese it 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 went across the divide Mm. and it went across the divide more so than final wars which is definitely transnationalism because you can see Independence Day in that film. You can see The Matrix in that film. It was trying to be so many different things, but that film, I don't think it got. I mean, like that again. Like this is probably where it gets into an interesting argument. Did it fail because it was it was aiming for a transnational audience trying to encompass too many things? There's
1: there's research that tells us that actually some of the some of the most portable movies that are not from Hollywood or from kind of some of the bigger centers of filmmaking travel best the more kind of nationally specific they are
0: so that would be like your gmk example certainly
1: um, that seem more distinctive i guess a term like exotic um would be the case yet yeah. final wars as a big kind of mashup like you say referencing global movies um doesn't necessarily land quite as well
0: is that, the, is that the correct term, referencing? Is that the scholarly term? Uh,
1: referencing,
0: intertextuality. Intertextuality, oh, nice, nice. Not ripping off.
1: No, no. <laughs> Homage.
0: Homage, oh, these great terms. This is wonderful <laughs> jargon that we're learning tonight. So we're going to end on that lovely note. Um, The book is Transnational Kaiju, or... Exploitation, globalization, and cult monster movies by Dr. Steve Rawl. It is available on Amazon. I have personally read it. It is fantastic. It gives you a unique perspective on kaiju films. I have a, an actual library shelves full of kaiju of kaiju uh, books. None of them have approached the topic like this, so I give it a very hearty recommend. I'm going to be writing a review up on um, our website, ukkaiju.com. You're welcome to look at that. Is it available now,
1: Steve? It is available now. Yeah, it's been out for about about two months. All
0: right. So it is available now. Um, It is an academic text. It is long. It has images. It has references. It is fantastic in that sense. However, you pay for quality. So... Now is the time to go asking friends and relations if there's a certain holiday coming up, by all means, this is your plug. Um, But yes, it uh, is definitely a five star from uh, myself. And um, it, it is, you will learn something reading it. You will see films, which you have no doubt seen before, if you're a fan of the genre and you will see them through new eyes. So again, hearty recommendation. So, Steve, um, I've totally just stolen your thunder and your recommendation there. However, at the end of our podcast, we normally give recommendations on what fans of the genre can pursue if um, they've enjoyed this podcast or if, like, say they enjoy your book. What would you recommend on a further note to what we've talked about tonight? Is there anything, any piece of media or story thing that they can check out? That is a great question um
1: probably something your listeners know which i got into totally in the research is is just how deeply kaiju runs through marvel comics um I yes, found does in my mid 40s starting to read comics again um through the, the the monsters unleashed series kid kaiju and you know elsa bloodstone has kind of appeared in the mcu um probably an unusual thing to talk about having a a, a very academic <laughs> book to plug um but getting back into um comics was 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 great for me and the 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 deadpool monsteropolis series is terrific
0: all right you know you
1: spider-man talking about kaiju um was a was a really great discovery uh in uh, in putting this book together
0: as a non- I've read Marvel comics, but let's just say I haven't read those ones. Is Spider-Man a fan? Is Spider-Man a fan of kaiju? uh not when they're in his city. Ambivalent.
1: Let's say ambivalent. I'm um, spidey. When he, has, when he has to fight them, no.
0: Man, Peter just never gets a break. No. Oh well. Anyways, folks, please check out the book. A review will post later. And as always, thanks for listening and keep it Kaiju.